The Bible is good news. The gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. But how many of you, how many of you realize that good news isn't always easy news? Sometimes good news is hard news. So, I want to begin a series. We're going to take a break from 1 John. In, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to talk about really... Um, really what this season is about. And this season is a season that we are encouraged to reflect and to reevaluate our spiritual condition. And repent. So this is a season of, of reflection, of repentance, and renewal. And the whole point of Reflecting and the whole point of repentance is spiritual renewal. And that, that truth, that reoccurring theme throughout the scripture of renewal, of new life, it's constant. In fact, when you're born again, think about that, that term, born again. It's a term of renewal. You were born once. In Christ, you're born again. You had a life that was defined by sin and death, but now in Christ, when you're born again, you have a new life defined by His life, His power, His resurrection. So we see this constant theme throughout the Scripture of Death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. Because God is constantly reminding us that He is the God of life, the God of renewal. And when we talk about reflection and repentance and renewal, it's not that we just have a certain time of year that we do that. You know, as a non-denominational church, we never celebrated Lent, and we still technically do not. We did not have an Ash Wednesday service. We don't have weekly Lenten services. We're not going to have a Monday Thursday service. So we're not traditional in that sense, but we would be foolish to say that the tradition of this season of encouraging the body of Christ to reflect and to repent and to experience renewal, we would be foolish if we just didn't acknowledge that or didn't pay attention to that. In fact, if we do acknowledge that and we do pay attention to that, it can actually create something wonderful. It could be the catalyst in your life that, that God would use to bring about a spiritual renewal. So, 
that's going to be the overarching theme as we go forward in the next few weeks leading up to Easter Sunday. I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take a diversion from the, the normal order of service I had here. Um, computer person back there for just a moment. I'm going to go kind of to, to another place right now. Because I think it's important. When you read the scripture... You know, what we typically do here at Christ Fellowship is we, we go verse by verse through the Scripture. So, you know, you will typically find me on Sunday morning preaching through a book of the Bible. You come to Wednesday night Bible study and we are going verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept through the book of Proverbs right now. And we read it together, we discuss it together, we talk about our questions together. It's awesome. You should come if you don't come. And so typically, because really, it is the scripture that brings life. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. But, but we also see that in the Bible, in particular, the New Testament, we call them books. But if you have a King James Bible, it will say this word epistle. How many of you know what the word epistle means? Most people don't know what the word epistle means because we don't use that word anymore. If I said to my wife, honey, it's almost Valentine's, I'm going to write you a love epistle. She might look at me and like, what are you talking about? Really, all I said was I'm going to write you a love letter. The word epistle just means letter. So what we see in the New Testament is, and I can tell you right now I'm going to run out of time today, Okay. I'm going to run out of time, so this message will be continued next week, and hopefully we'll get through everything we need to get through before Easter gets here. We'll do our best. So these little things we call books in the New Testament or books in the Bible, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, it was the letter written to the church in Ephesus. The book of Romans, it was the letter the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. The book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it was the first letter he wrote to the church in Corinth and the second letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. And what was the subject of those letters? Well, one thing you'll notice, if you pay attention as you read your Bible, there is tons of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament because that's what they had. That was the inspired word of God. It is still the inspired word of God today. Abraham giving his tithe to Melchizedek is, is still relevant and important and it applies to us today. It's not outdated and antiquated and been put away because it's in what we call the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament, the series of letters and the gospel records are filled with Old Testament scriptures because the Old Testament was all about Jesus. Because the Bible, all the way through, is about Jesus. And in those letters, we see the apostles addressing the issues that were current in those churches. And they used the scripture to address those issues, to bring correction. 
So I want to take this time, probably will take up all the rest of our time, and maybe I'll just give you an introduction to what our message is going to be next week. But I think this is important. We should not as Christians pretend like we live in a bubble. And we have a tendency to do that. We like to designate Sunday as our Christian bubble day. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to apologize to you, but I'm going to tell you right now, before all this is said and done, not just today, but in the weeks to come, there's probably a good chance I'm going to offend some of you. Hopefully, I'll convict some of you by what God has to say to us. And hopefully, out of that offense and that conviction, there will come some reflection some repentance, and ultimately some renewal. Because that's what God wants for his church. And you are his church. So I want to address some things taking place right now, currently, in our nation. Actions and reactions surrounding events and the place that the church is to occupy in the midst of all of this. And this is exactly what we see the writers of Scripture doing. They're addressing the things that are happening in the world and affecting those particular churches. And we would be foolish to think that what's happening in our culture right now isn't affecting the church. In fact, the reason the things that are happening in our culture right now, the reason they're happening is because of the church. Specifically because of what the church is not doing. And one of the things the church is not doing is addressing in truth and in reality what's happening. Because we are so concerned that we're going to offend the people. And God help, if you get offended, you won't give your money anymore. And if you don't give your money anymore, then the pastor won't get a salary anymore. And if the pastor doesn't get a salary anymore and we can't pay the light bills, the church could shut down. And so you've got, you have leadership in the church. And I'm talking, not this church. Thank God, not this church. But in the church... This is why you have leadership in the church that will not deal with real issues. That is so worried about offending people that we're going to change the very words of the Bible and not refer to the father as a father because that's a male figure. We're not going to refer to the son as a son because that's a male figure and that's, that's demeaning to the other gender or the non-genders. So we're going to rewrite the Bible and redefine who God is and make him something that he is not. And why do we do that? Because we're worried about offending people. And God forbid if we get political, right? We just have to stay away from that at all costs because the church should never be political because the Bible's not political. Really? As the church cried, Jesus is Lord, do you not think that Caesar 
Once that got back to him, he realized what was being said, and he said, no, Caesar is Lord. Sorry, Caesar, Jesus is Lord. That's a political statement right there. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. It was in the Roman Empire. It was in the Babylonian Empire when when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, they said, no, sorry, king, we will not bow down to your image because we only bow down to God. They didn't say, well, you know, it's just politics, no big deal. No, they understood that it was a matter of worship, not politics. The things that are happening in our country today are a matter of worship. They're not political. Abortion is not political. Abortion is spiritual. Abortion is about worship. In the Old Testament, when you read about the children of Israel, you'll see that one of the the things that Israel was commanded not to do was to associate, to intermarry with the other nations. Not because God was a racist, because he's not, because God created all the races. But God says, if you start intermarrying and intermingling with those other, those other tribes, those other people, you will begin to worship their gods. There was a god in the Old Testament called Moloch. Do you know how they worshiped Moloch? They would take their little babies, like my little granddaughter there, like little Evangeline, they'd take their little babies and they would cast them into the fire to feed Moloch. That was worship. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. We don't have a God today called Moloch. But we are still sacrificing babies on the altar of false gods and false idols. It's called abortion. And since 1973 in the United States of America, we as a nation have overseen, have sanctioned, have funded, have facilitated the legal destruction, the legal slaughter of over 50 million babies. 50 million American babies. I want you to think about this. 50 million. 45 years ago, that landmark Supreme Court decision was issued. And in 45 years, we have murdered over 1 million babies every year, on average. But where is the outcry? Where are the Hollywood stars crying out about the 50 million plus babies that have been slaughtered? 
Who's going to cry out today? Who's going to call a press conference today? Who's going to get on late night TV and make jokes about it to try to influence the culture because 3,000 babies will be slaughtered today? On average, that's what it is. On average, if you average it out over a seven-day week, over the course of the year, 3,000 babies a day are aborted. But I don't like that word, aborted. Let's call it what it is. They are murdered. They are slaughtered. They are offered on the altar of convenience. It is whether, listen, you need to realize this, church. Whether you realize, whether you realize it or not, whether you look at it this way or not, whether you believe it this way or not, and you may not look at it, believe it, consider it this way, but it doesn't really matter whether you do or whether you don't. This is exactly how the Bible presents it. This is an act of worship. These are babies literally being sacrificed on an altar. Though no mother goes into that abortion clinic thinking that. But don't you for one minute think there are not powers and principalities ruling in high places, influencing our sinful natures. Because we all love the God of convenience. I am tempted to worship the God of convenience constantly. My worship of the God of convenience may not look the same as somebody else's, but it, can, it doesn't really matter. So the enemy doesn't really care whether you think you're worshiping or not. In fact, he doesn't want you to think you are. But that's exactly what it is. The enemy doesn't want you to understand that what you do in this place is absolutely powerful and important. It is whether you realize it or not. There is actual spiritual warfare taking place right now by the simple fact that we are here. Whether you realize it or not, it's taking place. Something really happened when Jesus came. You know, we have Christmas and we sing Christmas carols and we set up little manger scenes and, and we do all the nice things at Christmas and it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's right. But we really don't understand what happened, what transpired when Jesus came. Something real, something powerful. The world changed when he came. I mean, heaven that was closed, that was like iron for 400 years when there was no prophetic voice in the land. And then one day, the angel pierced the heavens, came to the earth, spoke to the Virgin Mary, spoke to Joseph. Jesus was born. Heaven split open. The, the heavens were literally rent. And God came down. 
You read in the Old Testament prophets where the Old Testament prophets are praying and lamenting, God, rent the heavens. And that's what God did when Jesus came. He rent the heavens and heaven infiltrated, invaded earth. We don't think about that. We just see a little bitty baby in a manger. We see ceramic Jesuses all the time at Christmas and we say, oh, isn't he cute? Now that, that was, that was the Lord of hosts. That was the Lord of the armies of heaven. That was the commander. That was the captain. That was the leader who, who rent the heavens and came down and invaded a world. And he is still here. He has not left. He was born, he lived, he died. But he is not dead. And when he was resurrected, and when he ascended, I don't have time to do it today, but you can go to the book of Daniel. You read the book of Daniel, and he fulfilled what was written in the book of Daniel. When Daniel saw the vision of one like the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days, and there was a kingdom given to him. And when Jesus ascended to the heavenlies, he went to his Father, and the Father gave to Jesus the kingdom. The kingdoms. Remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? He had not eaten in 40 days. And the, the, the devil came to him and said, if you truly are the son of God, you can speak to these rocks right here and turn them into bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He tempted Jesus three times. And one of the temptations was he took Jesus up on a high mountain and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Satan did this. And Satan said to Jesus, the son of God, Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give to you all of these kingdoms that are mine right now. And Jesus said to the devil, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship only the Lord your God, and no other gods shall you have. Now, here's an important principle. We can see there what the Bible says, but do you see what the Bible doesn't say that actually it is saying? When, when, when Satan offered Jesus those kingdoms, do you notice what Jesus did not say? Jesus did not say, they're not yours anyways. You can't give them to me. You don't have the power to give them to me. That's something we would do as humans. We'd want to argue with him. Nuh-uh, uh-huh, uh-uh, uh-huh. Now Jesus just simply said, it is written, you shall not bow down and worship any other god. There is only one God. He didn't say, they're not yours to give me. But here's what Jesus knew. Jesus came to this earth 
on a mission. And do you know at the very moment Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan had no idea what Jesus was really here to do. Paul writes this in his letter in 1 Corinthians when he says, had the rulers of this world known, and he's not just talking about Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and the leaders of Israel. He's talking about the rulers of this world, the powers and principalities, the spirits of of wickedness, of darkness, and in high places. He said, had the rulers of this world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. When Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil has no clue what Jesus is on a mission to do. Now, what was Jesus on a mission to do? I just, I quoted it to you earlier. First John chapter three, verse eight, for this reason, the son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus didn't take the deal because Jesus knew he was going to destroy the devil and he would ascend to the Father and the Father would give to him everything, which is exactly what has happened. That has happened. But the Bible also says, Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, he said, we battle not against flesh and blood, but we battle against powers, principalities, spirits of wickedness in high places. So Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, but the war, the warfare is not over. The warfare is real. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, there is coming a day when Jesus returns and he will finally put underfoot his last enemy. And that last enemy is death. How do we know there is still a warfare going on? Because death is still happening. Because babies are still being offered on the altar to false gods. Because men are still railing and ranting and rejecting the true and living God. Because men are still making excuses for their disobedience to God. Do you know that God does not give us the option to obey do you realize that? I, I, we, we believe that, whether we believe it consciously or subconsciously. The Bible nowhere ever tells us, you know, if you want to obey, you can. But if you don't want to, no biggie. I'm love. I'll deal with it. No, that's not what God says. Do you know that we are not commanded by Jesus to go and ask people if they will trust in Jesus? That's not what, we're, that's not what the commission says. The commission is not to go ask them if they want to. Hey, do you feel like trusting in Jesus today? Oh, oh, sorry, didn't mean to bother you. No, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus commands us to command. Did you hear me, church? Jesus commands us to command faith. We are commanded to go forth and command men to believe. Now, I'm not commanding my power, my authority, because I don't have any except what Jesus has given me. It's like the messenger of a king. It's not the authority, it's not the messenger that's got the power and the authority. It's the man behind the messenger. So if we were living back in the old days, you know, the good old days, we all wanted to live in a castle and ride around on a horse in shining armor until you go visit a real castle and you realize, oh, this might not be so good after all, you know? And my rusty armor might not be uh, really what I thought it was. 
But you know, remember those days when the king would take his signet ring and he'd dip it in wax and he'd, he'd write a special super secret message and then he'd close that thing up and he'd, he'd seal that envelope with his signet ring and he'd give it to the messenger and he'd say, now you deliver this message in the name of the king. And the messenger would go the messenger wouldn't go to whoever he was going to and say, now listen, I command you in my name that you do what the king says. Th- that person would look at them and laugh at them, which is what the devil does to us when we try to come to him in our own name, in our own power. That's not what Jesus gave to us. He, di- he, didn't, he didn't tell us to go out in our own name and our own power. He said, you're my messenger, you're my ambassador, you're my representative, and what I command you to do is is declare my command. What you're doing is delivering a message. It's not up to you whether they accept it or not. What you must be faithful to do is deliver the message. But we've bought into this thing that we somehow have to convince people to believe in Jesus. Let me give you some freedom right now. Are you all listening? Listen. Put your hand up here so I'll know you're really listening. Are you listening? Here's freedom for you. You cannot. You do not have the power or the ability to make someone believe in Jesus. You can't do that. So don't worry about it. Well, I went and I told them, but they rejected me. They rejected Jesus. I feel like I didn't do a very good job. Now look, if, if you told them the truth, if you delivered the message the king told you to deliver, that's, that's all that is on you. Well, there is something else that's on you, that you live like a representative of the king. Now when that messenger goes, when he gets there, they're going to know he's a messenger of the king. How are they going to know that? Because he's going to carry himself a certain way. He's going to talk a certain way. He's probably going to look a certain way. He may even be dressed a certain way. But whatever it is, they're going to know this guy is a messenger from the king because he's got the goods. God is so clearly revealing where our salvation lies. Our salvation is in Him. But He's also clearly revealing, clearly showing us that man continues to look to himself for the salvation that he so desperately needs. Every day we are molding God into the image of man. Every day we are molding and fashioning God to make him look more and more and more like man. With the intent that if we can make God become enough of a man, then he will be just like us. And he will approve of what we do, what we believe, what we don't do, what we don't believe. If I'm God, then why do I have to tithe to myself? I'll just keep my money. If I'm my God, then why do I have to give to myself? I've already got it. I'll just keep it. But you're not your God. He's God. He's your God. 
And he doesn't suggest, he commands. Well, if I'm my own God, then I'll just, you know, go out, sit under a tree on Sunday morning, and I'll just have fellowship with myself and worship. No, we'd never say it that way. But we do say things like this, you know, I don't really need to go to church to have a relationship with God. That's beside the point. You miss the point entirely. Oh, thank you. I'll keep that. You missed the point entirely. God doesn't suggest that we assemble together. God commands that we assemble together. It's not an option. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in the military, but you don't have to be in the military to understand this. Do you remember? I remember when the first Gulf War took place, and I was working in Killeen. And I remember that they assembled massive amounts, train loads full of armament and equipment. And those trains just made an endless line to the port of Houston or wherever they were going. They'd come through here, just hundreds, hundreds of tanks and trucks and jeeps and equipment. And you go to, that was back in the day when you could drive on Fort Hood. You could just drive right on Fort Hood, drive around, look at them, driving all the tanks up on the rail cars and everything. It was fascinating. You drive around Fort Hood, and man, they're, they're loading these things up. They're getting them ready to go, putting them on trains and shipping them out. And, and men are marching around, and units are training. What was happening? There was a war and the nation was assembling an army. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when there's a war, armies are assembled? When there's a battle to be fought, the army is assembled. Now, just imagine if you were in that army that's being assembled, and your commanding officer said, Ripple! I want you to report for duty because we're assembling an army for war. I said, well, you know, commander, man, it's been so cold and cloudy for so long, and we finally got some sunshine. I was going to go to the lake today. You think I could come next week? I'll catch up. How do you think that would work out? It wouldn't. We would never think of doing that to an earthly commander or to an earthly authority. But what about God? God doesn't give us options, God gives us commands. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. Period. There's, there's no addendums there. It literally said, that's literally what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commands. Period. Well, uh, Jesus, can you explain that a little bit more? I don't think I quite understand that. Really, what is there not to understand there? Now listen, church. I didn't say you were saved by your works of righteousness. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying if you are saved... This is the consistent message. If you are saved, works of righteousness will be part of your life. 
If you are saved, it is because God loved you and put his love inside of you so that you could return that love to him. And if you love him, Jesus said, if you, if you really love me, keep my commandments. Because if you tell your child or your wife or your husband, honey, I love you. Honey, I love you as you beat them. You think they're going to really believe you love them. But you say, I say it, I say it all the time. As I'm beating you, I tell you how much I love you. Why don't you believe me? Because your words don't mean anything if there's not an action to back it up. And this is all Jesus is saying. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you say you love me, then keep my commandments. Do you want to know why we have mass murder in America? I'm talking small-scale mass murder, like 17 students killed in Florida. That small-scale mass murder compared to the 3,000 babies statistically that will be murdered today. 17 compared to 3,000. Let's take tens of thousands compared to 50 million. We have our proportions wrong. We're not looking at this right. That didn't happen last week. 50 million didn't happen last week. It happened 45 years ago. And what happened before 45 years ago? The church stopped believing the truth. The church stopped preaching the truth. The church got worried about whether the people were going to still be on board. So we started watering down our messages. We started trying to craft God into someone that would become acceptable to the world where the scripture never ever tells us to do that. The scripture says we must become acceptable to him. Now, here's the good news. The only way we can do that is because he and his grace gives us his righteousness. But he has to do that for you to become acceptable. And once you have been made acceptable to God by the beloved, and you profess love, Jesus very just very simply says, okay, I hear you. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is why we have the issues happening in our nation. Because the church will not address these things properly. Because the church will not keep his commandments. Forget the world. Stop pointing at the world. Stop pointing at sinners and saying, sinners are the problem. No, sinners are not the problem. Sinners have always existed. Jesus came to save sinners. The problem is not the world. The problem is the church. God says, in 2 Chronicles 7:14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray then I will hear from heaven forgive their sins and heal their land God never said if you church can get the world to confess me if you church can get the world who's not called by my name to humble themselves and pray to me then I'll heal your land that's not what the bible says The Bible says the church is the problem. The church has stopped humbling herself. The church has stopped obeying the commands of Jesus. The church has stopped 
doing what God in the scripture commands us to do. And then the church gets all bent out of shape and we start pointing our fingers at the world and say, it's their problem, it's their problem, it's their problem. And God is saying, no, church, it's your problem. It's your problem, church. You have not humbled yourself before me. You keep making excuses as to why you don't have to do what I've clearly written in my word. And if you keep living like that, this is why your world, your land, is suffering. Y'all still love me? Y'all think about it, okay? I hope you come back next week. Because I only got two lines into my message, so... But I felt like this, I felt like I needed to, to just share this as kind of really as an introduction. I want you to understand why I'm talking about the things I'm going to be talking about. This is serious. This is real. We, we're not acting like it is. We're not living like it is. We're not living like this is real. We're living like church is just some Sunday go to meet in social club and, you know, something I enjoy doing whenever, however, whatever. No, you are part of an army. You've been assembled by God, your commander, and he is commanding you. And, and we're going to talk about exactly why and what he's commanding you to do and why it's important for you to obey. Because if you really care about the things that are happening. All these people are out there railing all over about all kinds of things like they really care. They don't really care. How can you really care about children if you're sanctioning the murder of 3,000 a day? You don't really care about children. And you don't really love God. You can't. Now, there can be disconnects, and this is the other thing the church is supposed to do. The church is supposed to be able to go out into the world with love and care and compassion and speak the truth and help people make connection where there's disconnection. Do you realize, I don't know how it is in your world, but I meet people every day who quote the Bible to me, and they just don't really even understand what they're talking about because they've never really read it. Oh, I, I heard that's in the Bible, and so they just quote a scripture, but they have no clue what that scripture really means in, in the context that it's in. You, believer, you, Christian, part of the army of God, need to know how to use the equipment God's given you in the scriptures part. It, it is the main. It's the only offensive weapon that God has given to you. It'd be like God giving you a gun, and you never bothered to learn how to use it. Oh, am I supposed to use this thing? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I just know if you do this and you do that, it's supposed to work. But I really know how it works. So what we, what we end up doing is just hitting people over the head with our weapon instead of really learning how to use it in a way that it becomes effective. God didn't say go out and bludgeon people with the Bible. He said go and give them the good news and help them so that I can, so that that gospel can break into their hearts and they can know my love. So, let's get ready to come to the table today. 
Next week, we're going to talk specifically about the warfare of our worship. So I want you, I want you over the next weeks leading up to Easter, I want you to be purposeful in your reflection. I want you to seriously go to God and ask Him if there are areas of your life that need repentance and correction. And I want you to pray and ask God to give you a real spiritual renewal. So I want to invite you, as you trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to come to this table, this table of grace, this table of mercy, this table that affirms and reminds us of the covenant that we have with him and the power that is in that covenant. Church, come. So we're going to be begin this series of messages over the next weeks. And here's my charge to you today, my charge, my plea, that you would, in the days and weeks to come, Here's the fasting I want to encourage you to fast with. I want you to fast your time. I want you to take time. You determine how much time that is, but I want you to be purposeful and take time. And I want you to honestly reflect about your spiritual condition. I want you to Evaluate, reevaluate, go to God's Word, meditate on His Word, and ask God, God, where am I? What's truly happening in my heart? And ask Him to honestly reveal to you those things. And when He reveals those things to you, that you would repent, that you would change your mind change your thinking, and therefore change the way you actually live your life. I didn't say you'd do it perfectly. I didn't say you'd get it right all the time. But is that the desire of your heart? And then I want you to ask God and believe God and trust God to bring spiritual renewal to you, to those around you, to Christ's fellowship church, to the church, so that God's people would do what God commanded them to do, to humble themselves, to pray, to seek His face, so that He would forgive their sins, hear from heaven, heal their land. Our land needs healing, and the church holds the key to that healing. You are the church. I'm the only pastor. I'm only the pastor of this church. So I'm imploring you. I am provoking you, prodding you to do what God has commanded you to do so that we can experience his renewal. Let's stand. Father, we ask for your grace. We ask for your help in this. 
We can do nothing apart from your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, your commandments are our safety. They are the boundaries that you put around us to keep us safe and secure. Father, we see that those boundaries have been abolished, have been torn down by men, and there is no safety and there is no security outside of your word, your commandments. Help us, Father, be a church. Help us be the church in this community. Joined with all the other congregations. Let your church be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope, a beacon of your love. Father, we ask that you would in your grace and in your mercy help us to walk in repentance. Help us Father, to experience your renewal.